Okay. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. It says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, Lord, we bow together as a church family this morning in Jesus' name to give you the honor and the glory and the worship that you are so, so worthy of. We thank you for the cross, Lord. We thank you for sending your only begotten Son to take upon himself the penalty and the punishment that was due us dying for our sin on the cross that we may come to believe through Jesus' name, washed in his blood and a Lord who paid the price for us. So Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the scripture. We thank you, Lord, that that part of the ongoing fruit of our lives in following Jesus Christ is the generosity and the benevolence, Lord, of you and your giving yourself up on the cross. We thank you for that, Lord. We ask that you would bless Rory with a presence of your spirit. We ask that you would fill this place with your spirit, Lord, to open eyes and ears that we may hear and see that which you would have us grow to understand. Have your way in this church, Lord. Bless the word that comes out before you. May your, may your word not return to you void. May it achieve that which you desire it to accomplish. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, if you've been uh, part of our church for any matter of time, uh, you may recall that this is about our 30th teaching in these 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians. 34 if you count some of our guest speakers that we've had. Uh, and uh, nobody's counting, I'm sure. And so uh, in, the, in the weeks to come, we'll probably have about two more teachings in uh, this book and uh, it's just neat in our elders' meetings and in our planning of uh, as much as on our side of things, we just are being led by the Lord. Um, we believe he has some good words for our church through uh, the rest of this chapter, the rest of this book. And, uh, you know, we did probably a six-week series, if I'm correct, on uh, the resurrection and the implications of the resurrection, the proof of the resurrection, and, and of course we had a giant teaching on it last week, the evidence of the resurrection and what that means for us. But it's interesting that our context today that Blaine just read from concerning generous giving within the church comes right after chapter 15 where there's just this stellar passage on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus is alive, our faith is not empty, our preaching is not empty, uh, our time is not futile, but, uh, but we will rise again from the dead, and we have an eternal hope. And uh, everything that Jesus said has been vindicated in God raising him from the dead. Uh, even that, his, he's deity, he's the second person of the Trinity. And there's wonderful victory in that for the Christian. So much so that, that Paul quotes the psalm, O oh, death, where is your sting? In 1555, oh Hades or hell, where is your victory? And he goes on to say, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've had some good times these last few weeks of just worshiping the Lord, giving him thanks for the victory that's been applied to us in Jesus resurrecting from the dead. And so the last verse of chapter 15, coming off of the resurrection, I hope you're there, says, Therefore, 
All right. Whenever you get to a therefore, you ask, what's it there for? All right. In light of the resurrection, therefore, what Jesus has done in leading us in victory, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so before we get to these four verses concerning uh, the Corinthians and their giving and the application that we can take in 2014 Primeville today, we want to remember the good news that leads us towards giving. That not only did Jesus come and die for our sins on the cross, but that he rose from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. And if he is alive, we are alive. We are alive in him. Therefore, my beloved brethren in Prineville, to you, you're, I'm talking to you here, all right? To you, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, including generous, benevolent giving. All right? That's what we're going into in this next chapter. Because of the gospel, because of the good news of eternal life and forgiveness of sin and no sting in death and a certain judgment of sin and a certain kingdom of God being delivered to Jesus, as we just read in chapter 15, because of all that, be benevolent, be generous in your giving. As we look at this chapter, what Leon Morris calls a chatty little section... Let's get into it. Verse 1 says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the church of Galatia, so you must do. We get into this four verses on giving. And the church shudders at such a message. A pastor shudders at giving the message. Unless he and the church keep their gaze fixed on the gospel, where they realize that generous Christian giving is very important and shows the status of the heart, and that giving is much more than just numbers on an Excel spreadsheet or within a check registrar, or what you get to or don't get to do for vacation, but what you see actually is happening in your inner man or inner woman, then such a message is not superfluous, as Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Then a message on giving isn't redundant, isn't something that we roll our eyes at and just can't wait till what else does chapter 16 have for us. But today in our look at Christian giving, we have what one preacher calls the barometer of the heart. You see, our giving and the reflection of our use of our resources for the kingdom of God and the expansion of the gospel is the needle that shows where our heart is in relationship to Jesus. And our prayer for months now, as we've known this text is coming, is that today, by the Spirit of God, He would move that needle in your heart and show you, hey, look look where you're at. Look what I see. This is where I see that you're at. And just to comfort you, I don't know where you're at. Okay? So as I look out there, I don't look at the giving of our church as far as who gave what. I have no idea. As far as far as I know, you guys have all been donating billions of dollars. And praise God, all right? Um, Well, that might not measure up. I don't know. (laughs) But, you know, this is between you and the Lord as the word of God goes forth today. And so open up your heart to hear from him. Because once again, it's not a material issue today. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. One man said, all Christian ethics is gratitude. What we do with our time, our money, our resources, our weekends... It shows whether or not we're driven by the gospel. You know, money isn't actually the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all all evil. Money can actually be a very good thing, a, a wonderful tool 
a great thing for the glory of God. But what matters is what is our heart doing with this good thing? Is our heart making it a God? Is our heart making it a God thing? Lowercase g. This is very important. In our very uh, book that we're in, if you would have flipped back to chapter 5 or chapter 6, in chapter 5, verse 9 through 11, Paul says, don't keep company with sexually immoral people. Anyone named a brother who's sexually immoral, verse 11, and we all say, yeah. And in our studying, we studied homosexuality, and we're like, yeah, that's major sin, you know, and all of these different things that seem so heinous. But in the same section, it says, nor with those people who are greedy. You see, in the sight of the Lord, as he looks at your heart, if you are a greedy, covetous individual and you love money, you need to know that church discipline should actually take place. And in the next chapter, you need to know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's fornicators, that's idol worshipers, that's adulterers, that's homosexuals and sodomites. And we, should, and we would all say, that is unrighteousness. They will not be in heaven. But within that same breath, Paul says, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers or extortioners. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we often miss that one. We kind of get our eyes on that speck in our brother's eye, you know, or that sin that's out there and we forget, man, within me, I am so quick to make an idol out of money that I think is mine or money that I want to be mine. And we forget that greediness is anti-Christ. How we handle our money and our possessions is that barometer on how much we trust and treasure Christ. And this isn't just some clever Christian preaching cliche. These are the words of Jesus himself from the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew six nineteen, where he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Are you laying up treasures there? I know you wanted me to keep reading. I'm not going to keep reading. Is that where you're laying your treasures up at? I remember when the Lord spoke this to me, my treasures were on these thousand pound animals with hooves and flesh. They strap leather on their back and around. And the Lord was like, how long are you going to keep driving an hour multiple times a week to go out there and like put a shoe back on and keep feeding? And these things are becoming your God. These are horses, by the way. He's helping the people out. Of, okay. Um, and I had to just say, man, Lord, I've been treasuring these things on earth and they're going to die. And then what? They're going to totally fail me. And he says, well, Rory, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then in verse 21, we have the rationale for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The rationale is your heart cannot be in two places. Prineville, is your heart in two places? Is your heart with a person? Is your heart with a place? Is your heart with a thing? Is your heart with a currency? Can't, can't be so. Jesus himself says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Can't do it. And we try to have this dual Godhead within our Christianity, don't we? I'll serve Jesus on the weekend. I'm going to serve money the rest of the week, including Saturdays. The sphere of your investment reveals the location of your affection. Paul here, within the context of our text today, is referring to this gathering of, of finances He's referring to this collection that was meant for God's people called the saints, those who are called to be holy, set apart, his own special people, uh, useful for him in relationship with him. These are individuals that live in the region of Judea who are in a time of famine, they're in a time of persecution, and they're in a time of poverty. 
And we might think that those guys in Jerusalem, they were the rich ones, but actually everything that came into, all the money in Jerusalem came from the outside world. It came from outside countries. It came from people that were dwelling outside of Jerusalem. And then it would go to the main Jewish leaders and they would distribute that wealth. Well, when Christianity came to be and you got these messianic Jews and these people following Jesus, uh, that financial provision was cut off to them. Not only were they being persecuted and ostracized from the community and kicked out of the synagogues and the temples, the cheddar stopped, all right? The the money ceased with the persecutions. Add a famine to that to where the rest of the city was uh, in need, and, uh, and you have a dire straits for the Jerusalem church. And so a lot of the New Testament passages, we see Paul, and he actually tells his testimony. He says, uh, when I became an apostle to the Gentiles, the church leadership in Jerusalem, James, the brother of Jesus, he said, man, go out there. Obviously, that's your calling to minister to the Gentiles. And we would just ask that you would remember the poor. As you're preaching the gospel, don't eat things sacrificed to idols and remember the poor. And Paul says, and you know what? That's the very thing my heart wanted to do anyways. And so throughout Paul's missionary journeys, he's trumpeting the call for the poor Christians, for the people back in Jerusalem who were in deep poverty and deep trials. And there's much that we could say on that, but, uh, but we see that that's the, what this original context of this uh, donation was for. And so verse 2, we see when the collection was to be taken, it says, on the first day of the week. Or in the Greek, on every first day of the week. Now, the first day of the week, the Sunday, was the new time of worship for the Christians. We see this in uh, the Gospel of Mark. We see this in the book of Acts. That uh, they began to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord on Sunday. They began to call it the Lord's Day. And they would gather together and they would give together. And they would break bread together. And they would listen to teaching uh, one, one of those Lord's days, Paul began preaching on the Sunday evening and he went till midnight. You have a lot to be thankful for that our Sundays look a little bit different. Sometimes I go a little long, especially for second service. But uh, the Lord's day was a Sunday. And there's great evidence here, even in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. But it was every Sunday that this collection was to take place for the Corinthians. Now, what this speaks to us today is this, that our generous giving should be a celebration of the gospel, a celebration of the resurrection, and it should be regular. We should have regular giving going on. And I seriously have given consideration to, for my family on if we need to take our funds and start you know, breaking it and saving in, in every Sunday, coming together as a family, worshiping as a family, and giving into the treasuries of the church uh, for the distribution to the world every Sunday. So that every Sunday we're recalling the gospel and God's riches and his grace that pours down like rain, as Johnny's saying, and that we would every Sunday regularly be giving. And that might be the case, and maybe that would be what the Lord would speak to you today, regularly, but at least regularly. Maybe that's monthly, or maybe that's every two weeks, and, and, uh, and we'll see more as to how that can be guided in our life. But for me, as I've been studying this, uh, you know, I've just had to be real with my wife, you know, and just say, hey, maybe we need to rethink how we're doing this. And if I could just share personally from my life, um, you know, my wife is a certified public accountant, okay? So she knows numbers, she knows finances, uh, that's what she does for a living. And when we were dating, she was in school at OSU in financial uh, and, and uh, accounting classes at Oregon State. And here I am, a youth pastor, 19, 20 years old, and I bounce a check, which is regular for me at that age, Right. And I remember like, hey, honey, fiance, this is who you're marrying, right? I bounce a check. And, and she goes, well, give me this. This will never happen again. And, uh, and it never happened again. <laughs> Rent has been paid. My belly has been full. Gas in the tank. God has provided. And, you know, like the Proverbs 31 uh, virtuous woman, her hu- the heart of her husband safely trusts in her. And that's my testimony with my wife. And she wants me to stop talking about her now. <laughs> We don't know where she is in this room, so just, you know, wonder. Um, 
But here's the thing, with that, it's wonderful, safety, but with that, in my personal life, has, has come this kind of a removal of that giving and worship to the Lord. You know, yes, we give this amount, and, and maybe the Lord will call us to give here or here to these missionaries or whatever, but it's kind of Lindsay's thing. She handles that. I trust her. You know, we were at a thing recently where they're like taking donations and giving, and I was like, well, maybe we should. And she's over there writing the check, slipping it in there. I'm like, praise God, you know, awesome. She knows how much we can give. But I, Rory, I want to be more involved in the regular financial giving as worship, as the head of my home. I want to be a part of that. And so as Lindsay and I were driving this week, we just were talking about that. How can we be more regular? And and what would that take in a change in our lifestyle? And perhaps you would think about that and have a conversation after church today with your wife or your spouse, your husband, of what that could look like in your home to be regularly setting aside for the Lord's work. Now, it kind of also asks the question, so who should do this? Who should be involved in this giving? And we see here in verse 2 that it's each one of you. Each one of you. So is there anything in your current lifestyle or practice where you're not included in that? Um, It would be time to restructure so that you are a part of that sacrificial giving worship to the Lord on a regular basis. Now, it's also clear in the New Testament, there's certain people that God gives huge resources and storehouses so that they can give out. And that's kind of their, their thing. And they also have a spiritual gift of giving that Romans talks about. And the Lord says, if you have that gift, give liberally. All right. There are those groups of people, um, people that have that gifting and the Lord's give, gifted with that. Um, by the way, I would suggest that even if you have little right now, if you would give of what little you have, the Lord would give you more to give that you might become one of those generous givers. I've heard it said once that God has desired us as the church to be a distribution house for the Lord's resources, but so often we turn it into a warehouse and a storehouse. And I think that if the Lord would make you into, I think it's biblical, and we'll probably see some of those verses today if we get to them, that, that if we would give out, that the Lord would give us more to give out and more to give out, and we would become uh, able to be those generous givers. But in that, and with the giftings involved with giving, that is not to be done to compensate for the absence of committed individuals within the rest of the rank of the church. It shouldn't be three people carrying the kingdom of God through one local church. The scriptures say each one of you, each one of you. And you know what? This kind of stewardship of our resources and finances is one of the first things that you see happen in the book of Acts when revival takes place, as we feel we're, we're sensing a revival happening in our church and in our community. One of the first things is a grateful heart of gratitude that goes towards generous giving in the early church. Turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and we'll read a, a historical account of the first church in Jerusalem. And what happened when people met Jesus? It says, The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. These things were, were his own, but he didn't say that. All right? He didn't have that mentality. All right? They had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And here's our pattern uh, from the uh, New Testament, that people would sell things, and we're talking houses and lands, big resources, And they would come and lay them at the apostles' feet. These are qualified men. These are godly men, men of integrity and character, who are leaders in the church. And then what did these men do? They would distribute. They would know of the needs, and they would distribute as anyone had need. And then we have the testimony of this guy named Joseph, who has the nickname Barnabas, which means translated as son of encouragement. Uh, Verse 37 says he had land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So just this beautiful act of communism, not communism, 
All right? This isn't a communist, uh, manipulated socialism that, that we see in the early church. Rather, it's a gospel-motivated um, sacrificial giving of community. That's what we see taking place. And apparently by the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, those resources were gone and nothing else was being poured into that church through the oppression and the persecution and the famine. And so that was gone. And they are in need of, of more things. Um, we need to ask ourselves, what were these Corinthians supposed to give? And we see in our text in verse 2 that they were to lay something aside. It happens to be the Greek word taivimi, okay, uh, to lay something aside. And it means we appoint this and we cause it to be something. So it's like itemizing something to, to be set aside for the purpose of the kingdom. Uh, storing these things up and setting them aside. That word set aside, it's actually... Uh, thesaurizo, which we're, it's where we get our word thesaurus, where we have this treasure chest of words. I'm sure you love it. Uh, but we have this thesaurus within the church of the treasure of the funds. And we actually have that in our church. We have these little treasure boxes in the back. Don't start eyeing them too much. And it's the place where we can give these things as they're stored up and then qualified men of integrity take them in an ordered fashion and they count them and they register it. And it's all safely done. And that's what happened in Paul's day. Set these things aside on a regular weekly basis perhaps and put these resources in the treasury. Again, to just kind of get back on that regular weekly thing. I like what Alistair Begg said. There's something about the actual discipline of weekly setting aside money that is imperative for God's people. It's a reminder for us, at least on the first day of the week, that all that I am and all that I have is a result of God's grace and goodness to me. And perhaps that would take a shift in your lifestyle to make that happen. I just had to pray with Lindsay in the car last night. Lord, help me to be more intentional about this, that weekly or regularly we'd be pondering how God has poured into my life and how can I pour that back out. But for so many of us, it's an afterthought, isn't it? It's a secondary thought. And, uh, and I believe the Lord would want that to be a more regular thing. The question must be asked, how much? How much should I give? Give me, give me an amount and I'll pay it. I don't want to do any less than I'm supposed to do, but I certainly don't want to do any more than I'm supposed to do. Uh, I get the whole first day of the week or regular. How much? You know, write it down. Give me something to do. I'll do it. Well, we don't have a specific sum or percentage in the New Testament that a Christian is to give. Uh, we have where they are to give, and we see that the primary place is the local church, uh, their local church. Not the exclusive place, but it's the primary place of generous giving is to the local church. Uh, but that sum of money, that's a little bit different. Here we see in our text today, at the uh, verse 2, it says, storing up as he may prosper. Or perhaps your version says, in keeping with his income. So there's some correlation to take place between the money that you or I set aside on a regular basis and how God is prospering me, uh, not only financially, but with other resources as well. No amount in the New Testament is given, no certain percentage in the whole of the New Testament, not even once, uh, but there is this principle. It's in keeping with your income. Um, we're going to go over to 2 Corinthians 8 because it's there we have a little bit of commentary from the scripture on what's going on. So if everyone wants to flip in their Bibles over to 2 Corinthians 8, uh, that's primarily where we'll finish up today from. Um, and I love 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Like it's, There's so many great principles for Christian giving in it. Uh, and it's all gospel motivated, and it's all just like after reflection on, on what Jesus has done for us. It's a wonderful text, uh, and much as I'd love to just expound through the whole thing, we're going to kind of take nuggets out of it today uh, for the sake of time. Um, but what was happening, by the time you get to 2 Corinthians 8, most of you know 2 Corinthians is after 1 Corinthians, right? We got that down. Uh, so the reason I mention that is because we have something as a reference to what he said in 1 Corinthians. 
Here we are in 1 Corinthians today, and he says, lay something aside. And then in 2 Corinthians, we find out, so how did that all go, by the way? (laughs) Did anybody give anything? Did did you have anything to send? What what happened? And so Paul's going to give us some insight into what happened and how much the Corinthians gave. And he starts out by telling the Corinthians about the churches up in Europe, a place called Macedonia. He says in verse 1, We make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches up there in Macedonia, that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Uh, What that means is, is first of all, he's going to tell them, he's not going to address where they're at on giving so far, but he wants them to look at this other group of churches and say, "Look look what they're doing. Just check them out. And we see that this group of people had a ton of joy, even though they were in a place of deep poverty, they were very rich in their giving. I like the, the language here. They, uh, joy, uh, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. So even though the Macedonian church was poor, they were very liberal in their giving. Deep poverty. In the Greek, that means that their poverty was down to the death of them. That's what it really means. And this reminds me of Mark chapter 12, where Jesus is in the temple with the disciples, and he's sitting opposite the treasury, and he's watching people put money into the, the treasure that we've been speaking of. And, uh, and, you know, the wealthy men come along, and they give a lot. It's like, yes, I give a lot. You know, good job. And then this little woman, widow woman, comes along. And she only gives two measly little mites. But Jesus will tell us that they weren't measly at all. And this is what he says. All of those men at uh, 1244, they put in out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. And before that even, he says, this widow has put in more than all of those guys who put in out of their abundance. So you might not even have a place to sleep at night, but you can still be a giver. That's what Jesus is showing us here. You might be a poor widow woman, and yet the level of giving isn't how much you put in, but how much of your heart is being put in. He also says in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 8, this is about the Macedonians, That according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. So, you know, it says to the first Corinthians, in keeping with your income, give according to your income. But then he shows us this group of people that were like, oh yeah, we're going to keep according to our income, according to our ability we're going to give. But we're also going to give beyond our ability. And then not only that, we're going to be freely willing. Is that something that marks you today. Man, before you preach a message, you get to do a lot of heart examination, and you should. And it's hard. <laughs> and the Lord deals with you. Before you get up and teach other people on this, where are you at, Rory? Man, I want to be there. I've been crying out this weekend that God would take me to where I'm giving regularly according to my ability, and then beyond my ability, I want to be able to give that sacrificially. And then I want to just be freely willing with it all anyways and realize it's not mine, it's his. All right? Now, I like uh, how Alistair Begg puts this. You have to forgive me as I quote someone, just kind of my father's, I feel like. Um, He says, the best that I can do with this is the notion that I can forego a legitimate want in order to supply someone else's legitimate need. I am prepared to squeeze myself so that others might not feel the pinch. When you think of the people in this world that don't have clean drinking water, like at all, or any food, or any place to sleep, or women that are being sold into sex trafficking, and little girls that are being sold into that, suddenly you're like, okay, I think that, Lord, I could be squeezed here and maybe not go get my 12th cup of java from Starbucks this week or, you know, eat that chicken fried steak from Brothers for the fourth time this week, you know, uh, so that this little girl can, can be safe and be pure and be protected so that she doesn't feel the pinch 
Am I willing to feel the squeeze on my wallet? As much as could be expected of us are we giving, if not more, Matthew Henry says. Giving according to our ability, that's wonderful. Giving beyond our ability, man, that's gospel-motivated, sacrificial giving right there. Being freely willing, that's keeping your eyes on Jesus. You see his free grace. He says in verse 4 that these Macedonian people implored us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. That means that they begged Paul to take their money. And he's like, no, 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 you guys are poor. Don't give that much. Just, you know, according to your ability, according to your ability. Hey, they begged him, please take this. Take this to those who have sown into a spiritual matter. Certainly we can share with them in material things over there in Jerusalem. Take it. Go show them that we're genuine in our conversion and in our following of Christ and that we love them because he first loved us. You take it. Don't you rob us of this, Paul. Please take it with much urgency. You know how that is, right? When someone's like, oh, here's... Here's some money for doing that for me. Oh no, you take this. You take this, you know, and you have to push it back and you have that cool little fight about money and then you finally take it. You know, you know how it is. No? They said, please let us be part of this fellowship of ministering to the saints. And that's what Christian generosity is. You get to be part of the ministry to the saints so that ministries can be performed that are vital They are life-giving to the promotion of the gospel and the evangelizing of the world so that pastors can faithfully and regularly tend the flock. And yes, I say pastors, plural. That churches could be planted and those ministers supported. That missionaries that send us emails and are a part of our lives and are asking, Rory, could you perhaps... Ask your people to be part of supporting us as we're ministering to the Muslims in Jordan or to the, uh, the people who've fallen away from the gospel in London, you know, or to the voodoo Catholics in Rio or Curitiba, Brazil. Could you partner with us? We can't keep the power on at our church. You know, got to keep the heat going. Got to pay our water bill. And, and sometimes we can, yeah, I'll help you when I can, but gosh, I hate, we're going to have to pull support. Orphanage in Uganda, we're going to have to pull support right now. Bible translators that could be supported, church youth pastors or musicians. People can be supported in their ministry for the gospel, which is a very biblical thing. Seems a bit self-serving to teach on that. But who are the ones that are to teach on these things? Those that are doing it. It's awkward. It's awkward for you. It's awkward for me. But the beautiful thing is, is I have no need. God has provided very well. And through your generosity, God's provided for our home and for me to be able to shepherd this church. But there are pastors in our church that are elders that, I mean, they pour out so much here. And then they try to get work elsewhere. And, and have difficulty finding it. And it goes the same with deacons and people that we desire to come and serve our youth. It's hard to just drop everything and move to Prineville when there's no support. And the scriptures, even the New Testament, say who goes to war at their own expense? Or who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the fruit or tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? And Paul actually says, man, for someone to be ministering the gospel and not be able to be supported, even financially, that's like muzzling the ox while it treads out the grain. The Lord has commanded, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. In Galatians 6, 6, if you're taught the word of God, you're to share in all good things with those who teach the word of God. 1 Timothy chapter 5 says that there's to be honor over the elders that are among you, uh, double honor actually to those that are faithful to the word of God. And it speaks of financial honor being given to these individuals. But not only does it help provide for shepherds and and people to help provide oversight regularly and faithfully and on a regular basis, um, but we see these ministry needs 
provided that the church needs to operate. Things like curriculum being paid for and copyright freedoms that we need to have within our laws. Literature that's distributed even to our classrooms and our equipped school of ministry. Uh, computers and copy machines that need to be serviced and updated. The utilities that help pay for this church and instruments that need to be replaced or re- repaired as they get used so uh, hard here at the church janitorial and building supplies, things like that. Ministry looks a lot different in the 21st century than it did back in Paul's day. And praise God, he's been meeting our need on a month-to-month basis. But I'm excited to begin dreaming the dreams of God. And I want you to just think about that. What are the Lord's dreams for our church? And how can I be a part of that? Think of that as we continue through our study. And and we'll be wrapping it up sooner than later. Um, But I just want to pull apart just a few more of these nuggets just from what Paul says uh, about the Macedonians and then how he exhorts these Corinthians. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 8, 5, he says that these Macedonians first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Uh, I like that. It shows us that that generous giving is an act of worship. First, we are the Lord's. Then we give to the work of the Lord. True giving begins with that giving of ourselves to the Lord. As in marriage, you know, some vows go something like this. uh, With this ring, I thee wed with all my worldly goods, I thee endow. And you're essentially saying to your bride, whatever I have is yours. And as we are the bride of Christ, we say to our groom, whatever I have is yours. It's all yours. When the Lord Jesus gets us, he doesn't just get our tithe every month. Here you go, Lord, 10%. Done my deed. No, he gets everything. He gets 100%. Everything we own, the whole deal, all that we are. The business, the house, the cars, the vacation home, the pets, the boats, the RV, the animals. They're the Lord's. The whole income, 100% of the whole deal, Jesus's. True giving begins, first of all, with the giving of ourselves to the Lord. It's worship. And Philippians tells us that it's a sweet-smelling aroma that's beautiful, well-pleasing to the Lord. But as well as the Macedonians were doing, the Corinthians had kind of uh, backslidden on their deal and excitement that they had made with Paul. Uh, it says in verse 6 that, um, it says, as we urged Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. As you abound in everything, in faith and speech, in knowledge and diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. So there was an encouragement to the Corinthians to abound and to complete the grace of giving. And he says in verse 8, I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. It's okay to look at the Macedonian Christians and to say, wow, look at how they were impacted by the gospel of Jesus and how they desired to give. Now look at my life in Corinth or my life in Prineville. Is there some correction that needs to be done? Is I'm tested by the sincere love of others. But even that type of guilt motivation doesn't do it. And so the very next thing that Paul says is he tells us that the gospel motivates us towards generous giving. Then he says in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And that is the gospel. That in very nature, Jesus, God, made nothing of himself. God, who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, that the earth is his and all of its fullness, to whom nobody has ever lent that he should pay them back, as Romans 11 tells us. God is rich. And the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, was rich rich in heaven and in glory and in prestige and in popularity. He had it all. He had it all. It's the, the uppermost top of wealth and glory is God. And yet he gave it all up, including 
separation from the Father, becoming poor, becoming even spiritually poor for us, that we might become wealthy and rich in Him. He shared with us in his inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled in the heavens. He gave us his righteous standing so that we might enter into the holy place of God. He has made us rich through his poverty. He even would tell on his earthly life here that he had nowhere to lay his head. And how do we respond? C.T. Studd has an incredible testimony of coming from an incredibly wealthy family and giving it all up so he could be a missionary. And he said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice that I could ever make for him could ever be too great. Some principles that we see gleaned through the rest of this chapter and into 9 as well, 2 Corinthians 8. 10 and 9. Verse 12 tells us that our giving first needs a willing mind and it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. That shows us that our generous giving is that proportionate according to what we have. The woman who cracked the vial of the costly oil of spikenard and poured it on Jesus's feet, it speaks of her that it was very costly ointment that she worshiped the Lord with. And later on, Jesus defending her sacrifice and worship, he says, she has done what she could. Are you doing what you can at Calvary Chapel and in Prineville? Are you keeping with your income? And I don't mean, well, I make $30,000 Uh, a year, and so my lifestyle and all that I have and my luxuries caps out at 30,000. It's not what we're talking about. It's talking about being sacrificial in giving so that 80% of who we are can go towards the kingdom work. 100%, excuse me. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. If our expenditures on comfort luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those who have the same income as our own, we are probably giving way too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say that they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Randy Alcorn puts it a little differently. He said, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. 13 through 15 of the same chapter tells us that in this whole giving of things, it's not so that you could always be the one giving and you just get sucked dry, but there's going to be a time when you're the giver and someone else is receiving and there's going to be a time when someone else needs to Uh, give because you're the one that needs. And it's just wonderful to be able to talk with Lindsay yesterday and to just say, uh, as a cousin of mine sent an email and said, we've got, um, we've become a family of missionaries serving the Lord. We have four kids and all my kids love Jesus and are serving Jesus. We all feel called to Haiti. Our air miles cover four of our tickets. We need to make enough money for two more tickets. Would you pray along with us? Would you partner with us? Perhaps pray about giving financially. And what was amazing about that is just this verse in motion here uh, was when I was in high school, my cousin was from a very wealthy family and her family put braces on my teeth Food in my family's stomach when we went through a very poor time. Uh, sent me to Hungary on missions trips and contributed to a Brazil trip. They were just so benevolent to our home growing up. And now we're at a place where we're able to give and they're the ones that are needed. And they need it to go and share the gospel of the kingdom. And so it's like, how exciting is that? That's like Second Corinthians 8 um, being lived out in our midst. And so we're prayerful about how can we give to this wonderful mission? We see in verse 24 of chapter 8 that this giving is a proof of our love. It's a proof of our love. We see also at the end of chapter 8 and later on, in, uh, early on in chapter 9, that all of this giving is to be uh, well taken care of and stewarded well 
uh, with great care by the leaders of a church. Um, later on in chapter 9, if you just want to kind of skim, we're just skimming real quick before we close. Um, we see that uh, it's verse 5, that all of this giving, it may, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not from grudging obligation. So very prayerful as I would come to teach a message today that nobody would feel like they are just have a thumb down on them or they're being guilted into giving. Hey, you know, it's better to just not give, actually, if that's how, you're being, how, how you feel. Um, but to go to the Lord and just pray to the Lord and let him move you so that any giving you might do it would be from generosity and not from grudging obligation. Uh, and verse 6 says that if you would sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully. As Proverbs 3 says, we or, uh, honor the Lord with our possessions and our first fruits of our increase so that our barns will be filled with plenty and our vats will overflow with new wine. That's that whole distribution house idea. We're giving out stuff for the Lord and more stuff is just overflowing. We just can't give it away and instead of being the storehouses. He says in Malachi to test me in this. And this is right after the Lord rebukes uh, Israel as he says that you've robbed me in tithes and offerings. You've robbed me in your giving. And he goes on to say, so test me in this, says the Lord. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be enough room to receive it. If you sow just sparingly, penny-pinching in our giving to the kingdom, man, don't expect a whole lot back. But as you're giving uh, mightily, as you're giving greatly, you can expect a return, not for your own hoarding, but for giving out more. Verse 7 gives us the principle of each one of us giving as we purpose in our heart, not grudgingly, not of necessity, for the God loves a cheerful giver. He loves it when we're cheerful. And I love what cheerful means. It means hilarious in the Greek. That we would just be giving in a way that we're just like, huh, I can't believe I just gave $1,000 to that. That's like, well, now I'm going to have to trust the Lord for the rest of my stuff this month. What was I thinking, right? No, of course. Now I trust the Lord. I'm, this is hilarious. I've never used to give that way. And now I'm giving to the kingdom of God with great trust that he is going to take care of me because it was his in the first place. A cheerful giver, hilarious giver. Spurgeon calls this the master gun of our giving. Not by compulsion, not by guilt, not by obligation. That's not cheerful. But that we would be hilarious in the way we give our money, our time, our tears, our joy, our friendship, our service of bodily labor or babysitting or child care. Our knowledge, our tools, our computer, our toys, our food, our clothing, our guest houses, things like that. So we use them for the kingdom. We would do it with great cheer. And as we live in one of the richest nations this world has ever seen in the history of mankind, it would be tragic if not only did we say, I don't have anything to give, but if we moved so far as a church to say, I won't give anything. And is that where you're at? Even today, as a message goes forth, just where we're at, we're in 1 Corinthians. Last time we were in 1 Corinthians 15, now we're in 16. The Lord has something to speak to us concerning our generous giving, and, and I won't do it. This is ridiculous. And I would just say, get your eyes off of Rory, and get your eyes on Jesus. Look at his benevolent, gracious giving. And let your giving be motivated by that. The tithe, guys, that's Old Testament. That's Old Testament. And technically, if you wanted to get into it, the tithe was actually 23%, okay? Technically. But when you see that people were no longer having to give on this day this much, and you better not be late with it. And you see within the book of Exodus where they then switched over to doing a free will offering, that people were so overjoyed at giving in response to grace that they gave so much stuff that there wasn't enough place to put it all. And the Lord told Moses, you've actually got to go tell the people, stop giving. We've got more than enough. Praise God. That's grace-motivated giving. I'm not going to give you 10%. I'm going to say for some of you, that would be a great starting point. If you've never given before, 10% is a great starting point. 
But perhaps the Lord would say, hey, that's not the ceiling that I've given you. That's the floor that I've given you. Keep your eyes on me and give as I lead you by the Holy Spirit. We dream the dreams of God at our church. Right now, we've been fasting and praying just for direction as a church. And and if you were at the prayer meeting at the beginning of the year at the Pulse, where we prayed over our year, we actually prayed, Lord, what have you got? You know, we've got a, a lease on the building coming up. Do you want us to renew the lease or what do you want? And just in that time frame, we've been seeing different things, uh, leaky roofs and uh, floods and paint that's like peeling and carpet that has to be pulled back. And that's not the worst thing in the world. We can deal with that. But just noting that we've been noticing a fuller and fuller sanctuary. and We can actually deal with that, too. But we've also been noticing packed full children's ministry classrooms with nowhere for the kids to go. And that's a different sort of problem. That's a horse of a different color, all right? And not only that, we've got every woman in the church is pregnant right now, okay? So if you don't think you are, you might want to go take a test, okay? There's something in the water, all right? So we've got babies like crazy coming out, all right? And nowhere to put them. And we've got, then we've got people that are so moved by the Holy Spirit, they're sticking around this building for hours after church is done and our little kids that are by the multitudes have nowhere to go and so they're chasing each other around and everyone's all yeah stupid little kid don't you know that you're in a church you sit down over there and it's like what would you like them to do because there's nothing here there's a stop sign out there that those kids swing from you've seen it that's our jungle gym so we're just prayerful We're just fasting and crying out for the Lord. Maybe it's this building across the street. It would have to be the Lord that they'd come down on their finances, or maybe it'd have to be the Lord that our church would come up in our finances, that we could have a whole children's ward uh, for the youth and for a play area and for all that, you know, know, whatever. Or maybe it's a building or maybe it's a property. But we as a leadership are, we're sensing a compass pointing and we're just prayerful. And one thing that we notice is, man, the Lord is going to need to move us by his grace towards just benevolent giving. And that's one thing that's just going to need to happen. It just happens as we grow, as we dream the dreams of God. We have, our church is growing and, and like, it's growing in a great way. We've been counting and just sensitive of children and stuff. We've got one pastor on staff, no secretary no assistant, no assistant pastor, no youth pastor. There's a revival going on in the youth right now. One pastor on staff. And my dreams have been more pastors on staff. Helping provide for assistance. We have an assistant in our church who uh, has, a, has a clunker car that's always breaking down. No heat, no air. Um, and mold in her house. That Her family is sick. And she pours out her time like she's a full-time staff member at this church. How great if we, let's get a home. Let's get a car. Let's do this. It's not mine, it's the Lord's. Let's, let's think like that, church. Let's be generous. And we're prayerful as a leadership on, on where that is or what that should look like. One research was done at Stanford that, uh, that said, you know, if people just tithe, if they just kind of went, to like a, a good starting point from the old covenant and said, okay, that's, it's not negated in the new covenant, so it's a good starting point, but it's not the law for us. If that was the case, let me read you this. Within five-year time, if the church in America tithed, every Christian, 10% of what they make, $25 billion would relieve global hunger, starvation, and deaths from preventable diseases in five years. Why has that not happened? Where's the barometer on our heart as as a country of Christians? Does that show our heart status? That we have all of these churches on every block, in every city in America, and in five years, if people just gave the bottom level of something that we see as 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 a good starting point in Scripture, hunger would be solved in the world. $12 billion would eliminate illiteracy in the world in five years. $15 billion would would solve the world's water and sanitation issues 
specifically at places in the world where one billion people live on less than a dollar a day. One billion dollars would fully fund all overseas mission work, and 100 to 110 billion dollars would still be left over for any additional ministry expansion. Those are incredible numbers. And I want you guys to know, I don't know what anybody gives in this church. I used to not even know what I give. Remember, just talked about that. <laughs> and I want to grow in that. But as we as a church, we've got board members, amazing men who, we've had emails this week and stuff, just constantly email, constantly talk about, look and meet over our church finances and our stewardship. And there's been times when we've had to trim the fat and we go on a month-to-month basis, just if we could just pay rent, if we could just have Rory's salary paid, um, and if we could just have heat in the building and water, you know, and then the next thing to go is Rory's salary, which, you know, that's, if that's the Lord, that's okay. That's totally fine. But that's where we've been as a church for the last couple of years. And we see times of growth and we see times of wonderful generosity by our church. And let me just share, you remember last fall when Jeremy and Delina were going to adopt from China and they said in a week, we need some $2,500. And that Sunday, it like all came in plus some. Like, you are generous Christians. Praise God. And you might remember this uh, winter when Don Chafee's trying to get to Africa, and then we joked, and let's bring him home too, okay? And he's going to need help with um, tickets and stuff. And there's bake sales happening, and there's garage sales, and there's giving. And, uh, and there's, uh, the call goes out to you all, and $800 plus over what he ever needs for his plane tickets come in. And we're able to give that to the Uganda Water Project and to the building of this uh, community in Uganda. And so I praise God that we don't have a stingy body. But I think we have a body that needs to start seeing what our needs are here and, and what our dream is here, that we believe that God is going to use our church in this town in a mighty way and in this globe. In our elders meeting today, we are talking about um, just doors that seem to maybe be opening up in other countries. And perhaps one of those open doors, we're just kind of pushing on this door and praying and fasting, is to help out with um, rescuing girls from the sex trade in Thailand and in Indonesia and helping building places to help protect children so they don't get uh, sucked into that. And then even praying that God would solve the ringleaders of that. And maybe the Lord would use that. It seems to be a little bit of the heartbeat that's going on right now as we've fasted and prayed as a church. And so just be preparing, body, for different things that the Lord might call us to be generous on, on a regular, weekly basis. Dreaming the dreams of God. Let me just give you a figure from our church to kind of help put this in perspective. Uh, let's say we have 200 people in our church right now, which one of the last times I did the math, I think we were more like, ah, 160. So let's just say 200, okay? We've grown by 40 people. Praise God! Let's just say... 40, uh, 200 of those people make $18,000 a year, okay? Now, this is just conservative. Lots make more, but lots make less. So let's just say uh, $18,000 a year. And let's just say the minimum that, that each person was just tithing, okay? We would have $30,000 in just tithe per month as a church, okay? Right now, we go between like, Eight to ten, and we're more on the ten end of things. So if we tripled what we brought in, what would we be able to do for the kingdom and for this church even? This is nothing about me, all right? This isn't so Rory can have a shinier car or anything like that. Maybe we could get a pulpit with like flashing lights or something on it. No, (laughs) nothing like that, okay? Let's dream the dreams of God together, okay? So what that means is, Let's go home and let's pray with our family and our wives. Let's relook at our budget as a home. How much are we spending on stuff that is luxury stuff? When Paul says to Timothy, hey, let's be content with godliness. That's great gain. And if we will be content if we have food and clothing, the necessities. And then let's look at everything that's not necessity and let's say it's all subject to being chopped off right now as the Lord would lead. And it's just good to drive with Lindsay and to just be talking and letting her speak into my life and looking at our finances and uh, that the Lord is just working in our home as I pray that he would work in your home. John Stott, and we're closing here, and Johnny, who stayed here forever. Come on up, buddy. Johnny says, uh, Johnny, Johnny Stott, Scottish preacher who's passed away, not this Johnny. 
He says, I hope that the study of the chapters will help to raise our giving to a higher level and will persuade us to give more thoughtfully, more systematically, and more sacrificially. I, for one, speaking to myself first, have already reviewed and increased my giving. I adventure to hope that you may do likewise. Let's just come to the Lord right now in song. And we're going to just sing a song that's just like, Lord, you have been everything to me. You've given everything to me. Let's consider Jesus, who though he was rich, he became poor. And think of his poverty. You've never seen poverty like Jesus. That through his poverty, we might become rich. And I love how chapter 9 ends, just the last verse in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. If that's all you get out of today, go out of this place thanking God for the indescribable gift of Jesus. And God will do the rest from there. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's stand. As we close in this song, we're going to open up the communion table. We didn't have a chance first service. We're going to open it up second service because we do want to examine the cross and see God's picture and, and the true the picture that illustrates what truly happened when his blood was shed and his body was broken for the sins of the world. We remember that place of poverty that he went to. And let's just, before we partake today, just uh, we'll open up the communion table while Johnny's singing. Come forward, go back to your seat with the elements of communion, and will you just take some time and think about Jesus' death for you? For you. Think about yourself and how he died for you. And think of how rich you've become spiritually because of him. And think of the grace that he has poured out in your life. Even that you are here in America for such a time as this. You might think that you're very poor today, but you are more rich than the majority of the world's population. You are wealthy. And that the Lord would cause you to see that. And just as you hold those elements and you ponder the cross, just listen to the Lord. Listen to anything the Lord would say. Lifestyle changes, perhaps. Closing down accounts. Selling a land. Selling a vehicle. Donating to the kingdom. Being disciplined and just regular in the way that you give financially and as a family. And maybe even your own kids. Just they're going to be mowing lawns and they're going to be paper routes and working on farms and changing pack line and things like that where they can learn and grow from mom and dad in that generous sacrificial giving that each one and just as we ponder the cross let's ponder what the Lord would have from us today you've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County located in Primeville, Oregon for more information on this ministry or if you'd like to contribute please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.